You're listening to World Building for Masochists. And we're wondering why we do this to ourselves. Because unlike therapy, world building is free. I'm Marshall Ryan Moresca. I'm Cass Morris. I'm Rowena Miller, and this is episode 45. Let's be diplomatic. <laughs> Welcome back to another exciting episode of World Building for Masochists, where we're going to be talking about espionage and diplomacy in your world building. But first, do we have any announcements, friends? Well, those Hugo nominations are still open. If we haven't reminded you enough, and if you haven't voted, then clearly we haven't. <laughs> we are, in fact, eligible for Best Fan Cast. And if you think our semi-intelligent prattle is worthy of such nomination, then please put us down for that. We would be ever so thrilled. And, um, guess if you are a, a nominator, that is open to you. And I'm just going to put a pitch out there for folks who have never done a supporting membership with the Hugos before with Worldcon, um, you it it might seem like why should I even bother? Pandemic year, are we even gonna have Worldcon? If we did, would I even go? But here's the thing: if you are a supporting member, you will get to vote, and getting to vote means you get a fantastic packet of all the stuff that's on the ballot, which actually can kind of make up for the cost of that membership with all the the free stuff that you get to read. So there is a benefit, even if, um, you know, God forbid, travel is still not happening this year or it's something that you couldn't do anyway. Um, I think to nomination um, membership is closed now at this point, but you can still look into that whole supporting membership and you get to vote thing later. So just as a heads up for any of our listeners who like didn't know about that. I did not know about that for a long time. And then I discovered it and I was like, this is actually kind of amazing. And it plugs you into the community in a totally different way. So check and it out. The the value of what you get in the Hugo, Hugo voting packet in terms of like, here is a bunch of ebooks of the stuff that's nominated. It pretty much does pay for what you paid for the, for the, uh, supporting membership so it's definitely worth it i think yes. I, I was today years old when i found out i would be getting that so awesome <laughs> yes it's, it's great that sounds exciting load, you can load up your kindle for you know weeks worth of fun reading or months if you're like me and it's taking a really long time to finish even one book right now but i was gonna say i still have <gasps> books from the 2018 hugo nominations <laughs> that I've yet to read, but they're there. I have them ready to go. You could read them at any time. Yes. At any time. And and, so, and perhaps you will. Perhaps I will. It's Someday. it's Schrodinger's TBR. Exactly. <laughs> and I am so good at building that up. Uh, anyway, so those nominations close. If you are an, an eligible nominator, they close on Friday, March 19th. So you've still got a little bit of time. And there are... We're including links on our Twitter. There's also a fantastic spreadsheet with, you know, all sorts of things you might consider in all the categories. If you're feeling spoiled for choice and, and having optional paralysis, as I tend to do, I keep opening the nominating ballot and just getting intimidated and closing it again. But 
if you're with me, listeners, we can do this together. And we can get some good things on that ballot. That would be lovely. Well, excellent. And I am I am excited to dive into our topic for today because I feel like diplomacy and espionage are fantastic plot devices and fantastic elements of world building and revealers of world building that maybe next to the like stabbing people parts of plots don't get quite as much love as they should because you can't always stab someone but diplomacy and espionage do involve a fair amount of stabbing. they do involve some stabbing but you have to do other things first before the stabbing can happen Anybody who, like me, listened to the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy radio show far too often. There's a bit that exists only in the radio show version of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. It's not in the, it's not any of the books and all that. Which is that he has a bit of the the history of the history of warfare is divided into retribution, anticipation, and diplomacy. And this is a thing that just lives rent free in my head in Peter Jones's voice for decades. It's like and is split down thusly retribution i'm going to kill you because you killed my brother anticipation i'm going to kill you because i killed your brother and diplomacy i'm going to kill my brother and then kill you on the pretext that your brother did it (laughs) (laughs) so there's (laughs) yes do the math listeners (laughs) And that's why diplomacy is so much fun, because you can do all sorts of wild, crazy plot things with it and and have it be just this joyous convolution of, of plot machination. And stabbing, eventually. And stabbing. It's just but it's gotta be tactical stabbing. You know, you yeah, have to carefully <laughs> targeted stabbing. Right. Right. You can't just, you can't be just, just... You can't just go about stabbing people willy nilly. It has to be carefully planned. <laughs> And dare I say, executed. That's the real difference between war and diplomacy. Is your stabbing willy-nilly, or is it very focused? You can, focused you know, stabbing. be sitting there with your whole plan, then you just stab an old man through a curtain, and the next thing you know, everyone in Denmark is dead. And Norway invades. Learn from these mistakes. <laughs> so on, on that note, are there any um, books or series that you feel like have really excellent... Diplomacy and or espionage um, in them that you would point to as good stabbies? I don't know. <laughs> I, I feel like the, one of the, the examples that leaps to my mind is Jacqueline Carey's Cushiel series, because the heroine in that is a spy. And um, that's sort of, you know, the, in the background of her whole thing. And she gets involved with all kinds of diplomatic ventures both above and below the board as above and below the sheets um considering the nature of those stories and i I really like the the diplomatic and political scope in that world and in those stories but i was also thinking about how many books more recently do focus on like diplomacy to avoid the war as opposed to winning the war um and that got me thinking about uh previous guest of the podcast, uh, Melissa Caruso and The Tethered Mage and Obsidian Tower, the, the series that start with those two books, which are a lot about about that, about figuring out a way that involves as little stabbing as possible. Not necessarily no stabbing, <laughs> but minimal. How do we get out of this problem with minimal stabbing? Yes, I was actually thinking of Melissa's books because um, I think that she does such a good job of conveying the stakes that are there 
with diplomacy that, you know, she has these, these worlds that are imbued with a lot of magic. And so very bad things can happen if they go to war with each other, because it's sort of a, you know, potential for mutually assured destruction kind of situation sometimes. Um, so I think that there's a really good um, example in those books just of how, you know, how much you can do with the stakes with diplomacy that I think we sometimes think of diplomacy as being somehow less important or less high stakes than the life or death war battle stuff, but it's not. And I think that those books do a really excellent job of, of showing that and of all of the like intricate, complicated relationships between countries and between people and then even within countries, people not trusting one another there that you have an element of politics happening both, you know, inter and intra nationally. So um, those are good ones. This, this is where the fact that I am just so far behind on my giant TBR pile will, will definitely shows itself because like if I have had read the Goblin Emperor by now, I'd probably say the Goblin Emperor, <laughs> but I can't necessarily say that with any sort of authority because I've yet to read that one. But like, that seems to be the one that's like when you ask for people about political fantasy, that seems to be one of the big go-to answers. So that one might be more infrastructure than diplomacy and and espionage. But I feel like those things are all like deeply intertwined anyway. Like you can't have you can't have a political infrastructure plot without there being some diplomacy involved. Yeah, you have to have some pretty serious isolationist policy going on if you have absolutely zero diplomacy in in your nation that you've created. I mean that's you have built a bubble at that point and somehow <laughs> somehow are completely self-sufficient and keeping everyone out of it because because um, we use diplomacy for a lot of things. And like we've talked about and kind of like probably beaten into the ground way too much, our dead horse of, you know, people are a lot more interconnected than we often give them credit for, even in lower technology societies. Like, there's still another group of people over there, and we still know about them, and we still talk to them, and we still interact with them in some way. Um, so it's it's kind of hard to avoid diplomacy, and unless you're living in a bubble, which... And not only are there the people over there, but they talk to the people on the other side of over there. Right. <laughs> and that keeps going until you, until you hit water. <laughs> and then you cross the water and then you go talk to the people on the other side of the water and it turns out they've got some pretty kooky ideas too so fantastic it's a party have a snail and, and the thing is like even a story as simple as the princess bride which does not have particularly deep world building you know those cultures are not well established it's very much you know fantasy medieval pastiche but there's still a diplomatic plot there because part of why Humperdinck is going to murder his bride is so that he can blame it on the country next door and start a war. Like it's, it's that I'm yes. going to kill my bride. I'm going to kill my bride. Somebody else. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's exactly that. So even in a story like that, that's that world building light, these elements still exist. They're still part of just how society functions in a lot of ways. And one of the fun things about that book is I think I think it knows that it's doing that and it kind of plays against that trope in a way because there's a whole chapter. If you've ever read the book The Princess Bride, the conceit is that it is the good parts version, that he is abridging 
in in air quotes, a book that that doesn't actually exist. He's actually just writing it. But he takes this whole chapter, I think it's called Preparations, and it's all the things that Buttercup is supposed to do before she gets married. And it's like, it's all of this, like, mostly kind of diplomatic, both, you know, with it, you know, other noble families, and also traveling to other places to meet people and whatever and and the whole line in it is just like and this is the most boring crap ever and so it's been cut (laughs) except raise your hand if you were really disappointed that there wasn't an unabridged version because you totally would have read that yes yes i was seriously sad when i was like oh wait it's a joke (laughs) darn no i I wanted to read about packing the and unpacking the hats that was exactly Where he was going, like, here's all that world building nonsense that, like, is just stuff for the test. And we're just going to cut that. Like, right. you don't need to know all the ins and outs of the diplomacy between the two countries. You just need to know there's two countries. <laughs> and, and so all right. you get is between one thing and another, a year passed. <laughs> I wish I could get that into books sometimes. Like,. <laughs> You Goldman, no one else can get away with that ever again. It's a great trick. It's awesome. (laughs) But often we we cannot get away with simply, um, you know, turning the page quite literally on on that element of world building. And I think one of the most interesting kind of questions to ask is, you know, what role does diplomacy serve in a world anyway? Like how how formalized is it and what elements of formal diplomacy you know, are are being discussed, are being handled at some kind of international level. I mean, part of that boils down to how formalized the concept of the nation or the state actually is, and then how formal is each other's recognition of that that nation or state. Like, it's one thing if you've got, like, just a city-state that's got a king and a bunch of advisors, and if the next city over at least acknowledges that city exists and we're not energetic enough to take it over, so we might as well talk <laughs> it to them. <laughs> to them, And then that right there just starts the, the process of acknowledgement of each other's existence and validation, and then, boom, you have diplomacy. I mean, I think that some of the greatest failures of diplomacy in, in history that we could point to stem from a misunderstanding of whether or not a group is in fact a formalized glob of people in some way that we should be recognizing and talking to as a established quote-unquote nation. Because nations can look different depending on where you are and what part of history you're talking about. Like they are not always countries with borders drawn on in like Sharpie on a map. Like, that's not always what a nation looks like. And a nation can be a lot of things. It can be... Does it need to be a specific set of land? Can it just be a people that might not necessarily be in the same place? But if they have a concept that binds them together beyond just the sense of this is where we're from, then that can be a nation. That can be what a nation is. Especially when you throw magical bullshit into that and they don't have to be in the same place to be together. I would love to see a story that decoupled the idea of nation nation from land in that way. Because if you think of like either 
the Roma or the Jewish people, they don't tend to get treated with on the world stage as a nation. But what if you had an entire world where all of the, the nations were like that? They, they were people who lived in different places, united by perhaps aspects of ethnicity and or culture and or religion, but not by where they physically were. And if everybody was like that, what would that world look like and how would it operate in a different way than our world that has these very defined borders and if you don't have very defined borders we are not going to treat you with the respect of a people usually right what is what does diaspora look like if you don't have firm borders it yeah. looks like a bunch of nations in various places all over the world that you have yeah if that just wasn't even even a concept and and I don't know. I'd, that'd be an interesting thing to see explored. I also feel like there's an element of like what your diplomacy looks like and what role it serves related to what level of things can your society care about. As in, if your society is still mostly on a subsistence level, then your diplomacy with your neighbors, you know, be it neighboring clans or whatever you have, might be a trade level. I will trade you these goats for these sheep. As opposed to when you get to the more Baroque cultures, where it's like there could be a huge diplomatic incident over somebody using the wrong fork at a dinner <laughs> or something. Like, what level of things does your diplomacy care about? And, and what are you what are you discussing over these, these tables and things that you're having relations? I mean, that right there just is always a fascinating thing to me that once you have cultures and cultural mores that are complicated enough then the idea of what is a grave insult between one culture to the next can be more and more minute and you can you can do all sorts of crazy things with the idea that like something that is just a common you know might just be otherwise a a a social mistake suddenly gets escalated to a grave insult I'm reminded, and I've talked about this before on the podcast, the idea of like what just what the rules are of being a guest in somebody else's house and what in what you're supposed to eat can be radically different from culture to culture. And like there's cultures in the Middle East where if you eat everything that they put in front of you, that's a grave. And I think it's something I could have it wrong. But there's some cultures where like if they fix you a plate and put it in front of you, if you actually eat everything... That's an insult because you're basically saying you did not give me enough. But there's other cultures where if you don't eat everything, then you're saying your food is no good for me. And that's a deadly insult. So, like, if you don't know the specific rules of where you are, doing the exact same thing can be either exactly what you're supposed to do or a grave insult. <laughs> and then there are the cultures that will just keep putting more on your plate and if you if you clean your plate, there's more on it. So um, I don't know if there are grave insults there, but there is the potential for indigestion. So dangers at every corner when it comes to plate filling. But I think it's interesting that when you have like this potential for if you say or do the wrong thing, you can screw all this up royally. Then you kind of end up creating these niche roles for people who can navigate both cultures. And so I think another kind of interesting question for me in terms of like developing, um, you know, whatever kind of 
government or group or a diplomatic office or whatever is, is there a person whose job is literally to guide people through those negotiations? How formalized is that role? Is it just somebody who happens to have lived in a place that they're familiar with both? Or is it like people go to school for years to learn this stuff because it's just that complex and we don't have people just existing in the world who who know both? Or do we have people existing in the world who know both, but we kind of ignore that that's the case in order to only give these roles to people who have been to school and and have the right pedigree and credentials and whatever when actually, you know, Bob who immigrated here from that country would probably do just fine, but he's a vegetable seller, so we don't pay attention to him. But how much of diplomacy is the art of the code switch that you're able to be be that bridge between two different two different cultures, two different methods and be able to speak in the way that both sides understand. Not just on a pure linguistic level, but on a far more intrinsic understanding level. Yes. When when you say this, it really means this. So yeah. <laughs> here's what you just said. <laughs> Which reminds me, there was apparently just a thing where to some people ending an email with best, that's a grave insult. Apparently, to some people, which is news to me, because that's how I end all my emails all the time. <laughs> I'm really sorry if I've been insulting everyone. I apologize. I did not know. But, like, somebody else then responded, like, of, like, what to them the code was. Like, if you said, like, warm regards, that's actually, go fuck yourself. And I'm like, that's... <laughs> That would not be what I would have thought, but okay. <laughs> I'm just going to start signing all my emails. I have the honor to be your obedient servant, and they can decide whether I mean that or I'm challenging them to a duel. Like I, I, I would presume the duel, at least with you, cats. <laughs> just for fun. I mean, I'm really bored in quarantine, so. <laughs> I could stand a duel, but around now. At least would give us something to do. <laughs> I mean, you know, if you're doing a pistol duel, it is socially distanced. There you go. There you go. <laughs> I think I think it's interesting, too, when stories entrust part or all of their diplomatic efforts to people who really don't know what they're doing. Which seems like such a dumb move, but we actually do that in the world all the time, that we give this power oh, and this yeah. responsibility to people who actually don't know what they're doing, like, at all. Um but not only can it be kind of fun from a plot perspective, but it can let you show things from a world building perspective that someone who actually knows what they're doing is not even going to think about or do. So while it seems like a dumb move, it, it actually is certainly um, like justifiable from how we actually do things in the real world and can be fun for your world building. I mean, how often is the ambassador to whatever country just some friend of whoever is in charge who's just like hey you want to live in india for a couple of years okay you're the ambassador <laughs> and like what's your qualifications your qualifications is you're the one who's going that's your qualification congratulations <laughs> congratulations you gave a lot of money to my campaign so <laughs> yep you get to have this job now so we've talked about like some of the above board sorts of elements of international relations 
your diplomacy, your diplomatic envoys, your people whose jobs this might be to go and make nice at the more formalized elements of diplomatic interaction. But what about the less above board, the in the shadows, the cloak and dagger sort of element of diplomacy, its fun cousin, espionage? I mean, the root of espionage is the idea of, like, you have information that we don't have that we want. So therefore we need to send somebody to go get that information or we we either know you won't give it to us or we don't trust you to tell us the truth or the full truth. So we have to get at it another way. Right. Or we, you know, or we think you're going to do something and we want to stop you from doing a thing. And rather than just saying, Hey, don't do that. (laughs) (laughs) We have to come up with the whole plan. I mean, and in terms of, like formalization like i always like having there being a actual like like in the meriting books there truth intelligence is a thing that exists and i i like having it be a very formalized organization with structure and all that and what are they doing they're they're doing all sorts of things and i don't i don't need to like i didn't like work out the full structure of everything that they do and how it works and all that but i like the idea of having a formalized system so then i can you you can at least then allow there to be a level of competence that has to exist just because that there is a formalized institution not saying the formalized institution necessarily are competent (laughs) i'm i'm sorry marshall are you saying you don't have a spreadsheet for truth intelligence and where all of their operatives are not all the operatives Oh, okay. some of them. Okay. okay, okay. Listen. I was going to be deeply I was troubled. Gonna, if I made a knock list, then somebody could get the knock list. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's fun because I feel like espionage is something we think of as a, a modern concept. When we think of spies, we think of James Bond, we think of gadgets, we think of cyber hacking and all that stuff. But there are such ancient examples. And sort of at the base level, just scouting is a form of espionage. Just figuring out, like, where are all of your dudes that might stab our dudes? I'm going to go look and hope you don't see me. That's a form of espionage. But it can get formalized at a lot of different tech levels. So so whatever your, your flavor of your world or your tech level is at, there could be options. And I discovered one for Rome just this last week, and I was so excited. <laughs> I was... I was looking up something completely different. This is what research can do for you, gentle <laughs> listeners. I was trying to find out something about the grain dole, which I couldn't find out because it was one of those things that was so basic, no one thought to write much down about the grain dole. But in the process of trying to find out about the grain dole, I learned about the frumentarii, who were technically wheat collectors, except Hadrian turned them into a formal spy network because Wheat collectors went all over the empire and talked to people at all levels of society, from, you know, farmers to merchants to governors to to everybody. And so he, at least according to a couple of sources, organized them to be his spies all over the Roman Empire. And I thought that was fascinating and immediately had to stop myself from trying to insert a subplot related to this (laughs) into my books that already have too many subplots. I will put a pin in that and use the wheat collectors later. But I mean, the other fun thing is 
when you're using espionage, like, an espionage plot is essentially a heist where what you're stealing is information. Every Mission Impossible, that is basically what the whole plot is. And I, I, I remain deeply, deeply in love with how every single one of them comes up with these more and more absurd ways in which information can be impossible to get at just to then become the, you know, the horrible thing that we have to overcome. Because, like, I absolutely adore, I think it's the fifth one, where it's like the whole, like, he has to, like, change the cards underwater while Benji is, like, walking through, like, the seven steps of things, including the the thing that gauges the walk of the person to make sure it's the right person and all that. And it's just like, and this is all just to then access information that was in this data vault. And I'm like, at what point does that just not become a useful way to have your information <laughs> stored? Because, like, the actual person who might need that, like... That's way too much. I'm sorry. Like, <laughs> it's like it's safer to just be in a card in your briefcase because you know, because <laughs> at least then you can get it when you need it. But like, it's like that version of putting something away in a very safe place in your house and then forgetting where it is. Yeah, like, <laughs> you've you've overshot and and the purpose has now been defeated. Though a great example of. A great if you want to have a good sense of like the way espionage can work in your stories i i cannot recommend enough watching the americans which is very sort of lo-fi in the way it does a lot of its espionage because it is it's set in the 80s so it doesn't i mean but it does not get very tech dependent like they will receive like coded phone calls and hear things on the radio but that's about as as tech as it gets like they're doing you know, they're doing some disguises with wigs and makeup, but most of what they do is very sort of low tech dealing with the people that they want to, to influence or get to do the things that they want to do. And, you know, so and there is just a ton of neat spy craft things they do in that show over the course of the show. Not to mention that the whole show is about the toll it takes on them, that their entire life is being undercover spies well and i like that you bring up like the element of influencing people and yeah. relationships and relationship building as part of a potential for espionage because i think that often when we get kind of drawn up into the more mission impossible james bond brand of spy story it is very action heavy gadget heavy flashy you heist know, kind of things right heist kind of stuff instead of the idea of getting into a culture or place that's not necessarily your own and developing that like comfort with being there or having some niche that you're filling and developing relationships that then lead you to so there's that kind of spy story too that you know, you have to be very comfortable with how does a person like that fit into the world that you're building and what do you do with them and how do they get what they need um, from people rather than underwater spy vaults. Yeah, because so much of what they do in that show is identify a person that they need information or they need to exert influence over one way or another and then crafting a persona that they use then to interact with that person and then like the act of and so many of them are like long-term projects that they're working and thus have to like 
juggle these different personas that they have with different people. I mean, one of the subplots is that the the husband of the the husband and wife team who part of their whole thing is pretending to be husband and wife and living as husband and wife for 20 years to blend into America and like what that does to them. But he, the persona he takes on to, to romance and seduce the secretary who works in the CIA, then like that persona, he eventually has to, he eventually marries the secretary so she's thinking i have this husband who's just out on business all the time and but he works for this organization but like no he doesn't work for that organization because <laughs> like the 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 point where it reaches where she finds out that everything she knows is a lie and also oh by the way you're already in way too deep with russian agents and you have to flee the country <laughs> like, sorry spoilers for the americans but <laughs> but like the level of depth and doing that they have to go into in creating these personas and the amount of emotional partition they have to do within who they interact with and even in interacting with each other is just astounding. Like the, the, the show is entirely about the cost on their souls of what they have to do. I think you see that a lot too in, in my, my all-time favorite spy, I think, which is Garrick. In Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Oh, yes. Who, the humble tailor. Plain, just a humble Garrick. tailor. Um, it's fantastic because it's obvious from Go that he's a spy. <laughs> Except you're never quite sure exactly who he's still functioning for and exactly when he's lying and exactly when he's telling the truth and what part of him is honest and which part isn't. I mean, through the whole series. And they slowly reveal some things about him as it goes on. But you also see these moments where, like, lying has become so much a part of who he is and what he does that he almost doesn't know how not to do it. Yeah. It's instinctive. It's so much just how he operates in the world. And it gets used in lots of different ways. And, and you know, the Cardassians still use him sometimes, and the Federation uses him sometimes. He's been sort of abandoned by his initial structure that he was in. And it just, it opened up so many fun plot lines in, in that show. I mean, and just so the fun. idea that you're like 95% sure he is not an active spy of any sort. But he's so inured with being a spy that he can't not do it. Even when the fact is like, yeah, you're an ex-spy who, you know, who now has he's to not be like, a tailor. <laughs> he's not like reporting to anyone anymore, but it's still like, but you're, you just are a spy. Even if you're not in a spy organization anymore, that's just... At your DNA level, you're a spy. <laughs> <laughs> you can't not do it. So, but my my my, my, my all time favorite line of his is when he's told like eighteen different stories about his background, and Julian Bashir finally just asks him like which which of which of those were true, and, and Garrick says, "Oh, they were all true, even the lies, especially the lies." <laughs> It's like, what a good line. <laughs> Fantastic. Especially the lies. Everything. And I think that's part of part of both, I suppose, espionage and above board diplomacy is how much truth do you reveal? To whom do you reveal what truths? And the best spies are going to have kernels of truth in, in even in their, their lying. And that can be fun to play with from the And the best diplomats as well. Yeah. Well, exactly. Like for both diplomats and spies, like whatever side of that coin you're on, from the writer's perspective, 
you're also sort of toying with the audience in that way, with the reader. How much do you deliver to them? How much of the truth did they see at what point in the book? So I think that it's fun that those elements, the kind of human elements and emotional elements and the playing with truth versus lie, like it doesn't necessarily matter what level of technology a world is at or what level of kind of like formalized nation building like that stuff can be there so you can fold that stuff in um but i do think that like the level of technology and those kind of things can affect like how is that actually going to work then like diplomacy changes when you have to cross oceans to do it and you don't have like planes like when it's going to take several months to get the answer back like how diplomacy works is going to change um I guess I was thinking about that just in relationship to our conversation about like these things have always been there, but then how do they change and shift depending on what you've built the rest of the world to look like? Certainly an ambassador that has immediate communication back home is a very different kind of ambassador than the one that just will go somewhere and has to operate independently and make decisions entirely their own without having the luxury of checking back home or anything like that, that they're, they are basically acting with complete autonomy in terms of, you know, what they what their mission is. Like they have their mission parameters of what they can and can't do, but they're on their own and they have to be on their own and be comfortable with with the choices they make being being alone out there without being able to write back home and get an immediate answer. Right. It's a it's a very different thing to say, you go to that country over there and negotiate a treaty than it is to be like, you go phone in every few hours and uh, we'll talk. <laughs> I feel like the, the isolated diplomat or spy is both in a more dangerous position oh, yeah. because they don't have backup, but they're also in a more trusted position. Like you have to, if you're the, the governing entity, you have to trust that person a lot, knowing that so much is, is down to their discretion and their decision making. And how much, how much of am, diplomats and ambassadors is sort of like a benevolent hostage exchange? Like, <laughs> to a degree, it is this sort of like, you know, you have, you have our guy over there, we have yours over here, and we'll talk to each other, but if bad things happen, it's not going to look good for your person. And also, just the um, act of ha- hosting someone... And allowing them to be there is itself an act of diplomacy. Like even in the past week, what we've seen, some of the European Union nations have kicked out their Russian ambassadors. And like, that's a thing, right? Like that's a message to say, you know, if, if you kick our guy out, we're kicking your guy out. And that means that we're, you're not sitting at our lunch table anymore, kind of like level of message sending. And um, like a few years ago when, when we kicked the Russians out, but it wasn't from all of our all of the embassies right. it was like we're gonna kick them out of san francisco and houston but the others can stay <laughs> it's like <laughs> what level of message are you sending that seems oddly calibrated but i'm sure there's you know thought that goes into that like we're taking <laughs> we're taking 20 percent of your diplomats away <laughs> that'll show you well and also the question is what is an embassy does your world have enough I don't necessarily want to say advancement, but does it have enough concept of 
what formal diplomacy is that an embassy a space within another country that is designated like that is technically a little island of your country sitting there that that you that you're safe from their laws or what have you if you're in that little if you're in the embassy like is that even a concept in the world you're building yeah because that implies a level of formality yeah but also implies a level of like we don't completely trust you and we all know this about our relationship (laughs) we're getting along however we need a safe space to retreat to and we need laws that are going to protect us within this space that we are occupying and we need laws that are going to protect us from any kind of malfeasance on your part because let's be honest we're having these conversations because we don't completely trust each other or else we wouldn't have to have these conversations because part of that is the idea of like your laws about a thing and our laws about a thing are very very different and we don't fully trust the way your laws work so over here in our little island it's going to be our laws (laughs) within this building and we have agreed that you can't touch anything that happens in this building and i feel like that whole concept spins back to what we were talking about earlier with is this a formal job is there training for it or is it is it less structured than that do you have formal diplomats or are your diplomats people who have perhaps married into the other culture into the you know have we traded you a duchess and that person may not have formal status but she also might have access to some stuff that a formal diplomat wouldn't have access to i think you can sort of play with those levels of of formality as well and how much interaction do the formal diplomats and the people doing the espionage have with each other and how much are they supposed to have? And how, how much, much are they do they actually have, have? And how much do they actually have? Which was another... I'm going to bring up the Americans again because it does it so, so damn well. Because, like, there is a, a whole running subplot of within the Russian embassy in Washington, D.C. And there's one point where they know that they have spies who are doing a thing somewhere in the city. And then they find out like the diplomats find out oh my god we can't do this thing but they have no way of telling the spies don't do the thing so the only thing that they do can do is they get a bunch of cars spray paint a message on the side of the car (laughs) and just drive the cars around (laughs) subtle Subtle. (laughs) because it's like we cannot be subtle there is no being subtle right now we have to basically put out a bullhorn don't do the thing (laughs) The thing is a trap. <laughs> it's a trap. And do your, I mean, do do your spies know each other? Yeah. Um, that's one of the things I love in in Good Omens, where you know Aziraphale and Crowley are sort of for their respective sides. But the book mentions that, like, you know, the English and the Russian attaches also meet at this park to feed the ducks and sort of trade information. And you know, is that part of the game? Is knowing who the other side is and how much you can give to them and how much eases your way and how much you really shouldn't say. There's there's all those levels of social negotiation. How much of spycraft is just really back-channel diplomacy that it is just this sort of weird social game where 
we're going to share information, but not do it through formal channels. How much of it is just the informal channels of diplomacy? Yeah, and frequently, how much do people who are outside the formal network actually know things that are very valuable? And even if they are not formal diplomats or official spies are still engaging with that in some way. Like you think of, you know, innkeepers or, you know, anyone who is coming into contact with a lot of people and kind of starts to piece together things that are happening. And I think that that's fun stuff that sometimes happens in fantasy novels and other novels too, is that like kind of like the informal nosy neighbor version of the spy who's putting things together and actually ends up knowing things that are in fact plot vital in many ways. And how much is people who can't do things formally using that informality as to their advantage because they know it, even though it's not supposed, they're not supposed to know it exists. They know it exists. I mean, to go back to Garrick on Deep Space Nine, there's one where they're like, we can't warn, we can't officially warn Cardassia about a thing, but we can just be talking about it while Garrick comes and measures me for a suit. <laughs> it's fantastic. It takes like four seconds and he's like, all right, I have what I need. I'll be on my way. <laughs> yes, I, I understand completely what this, what this is about because we're being as subtle as a brick bat right now. <laughs> So what happens when magic enters this equation? If we're moving this out of our world and into a fantasy world, how can you throw a monkey wrench into how diplomacy and espionage work with magic? Well, like, as you were talking about with, with Melissa Caruso's, like, if magic becomes sort of world-ending level of warfare between two cultures, then then you sort of have to do a cold war sort of thing if mutually assured destruction is what's happening so thus you have to rely more on diplomacy and espionage rather than outright warfare and one of the things that i love in her books too is that like so much of diplomacy i think is also about impressing others with your influence like that's why you want the nice embassy right because everyone says oh you know that's the such and such embassy they must really know their stuff they must really be you know they spent all this stuff. money just to build a building over here. <laughs> right. So they must be important. And the way that she kind of expresses that importance is people, especially in um, in one of the, the countries, will use magic to kind of like show off that it's like you don't you don't show up to the um, like mages invitational diplomacy dinner without having like it's all out there. You're showing off what you have. And I think that magic gives you such an opportunity for that kind of like influence, show off who you are, show off the power that you've got um, and intimidate friends and enemies alike into um, playing nicely. I feel like magic can also affect how the mechanics of, of especially your spycraft might work. If you think about the ability of magic to enhance ciphers and things like that or defensive espionage you know i've placed a curse on this thing so if you come in here and try to get at my super secret vault there's a magical curse upon it and that will rebound on you um there's so much so many fun things you can play with in magicifying sort of the tech of espionage yes i just um finished reading sail polk's midnight bargain and one of the fun things in that one is that there's like 
in normal looking books, there are secret messages hidden that you can only put there by magic and only decipher by magic. And so there's this whole network of people who have access to this information only because they know it's there and they can use magic to locate and actually read it, whereas other people would have no clue. But then on a diplomatic level, too, if you have magical means of communication or transportation that are faster than real world options, that plays into what we talked about earlier with, you know, how fast can you get word back to the home office? How fast can you negotiate a treaty? Um, how much do you have to trust that person? Do you have access? Do you give them access to these magical portals? Do, do maybe only certain levels of diplomats have the ability to, to use this magic or... Can everyone who's representing your country have it? There's there's all sorts of things to explore there. Yeah, what does what does your diplomat look like if they never have to leave your country to speak to people? If the way that you do that is you have a magic mirror or crystal ball, that that's how you communicate with people in other places is they have, you know, a line on their end and you just, you know, zoom, basically. <laughs> Only it's magic. So Sauron's Palantirs were just, you know, his his <laughs> He was trying to put together the, the Middle Earth UN. That was all. We just vastly was, misunderstood yeah. his purpose. Yes. <laughs> he even had a kitten filter on there. <laughs> of course, in a magical world, your diplomat could have actually been turned into a kitten. Yes, which I want that short story now. So that would be fantastic. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> or as we were talking about um, a couple weeks ago with Kate Elliott, the magical nudity gate. <laughs> If you have instantaneous transport, I cannot imagine that diplomats would not use it. But then we have the complication of you come through the door naked. So, but I think I'm just I'm just imagining that this becomes like a cultural thing then, where all diplomatic meetings, even if you don't need the use of the magical nudity gate to get there, have to be done in the nude to show that you're not hiding anything. Exactly. Like I am here. I am honest. <laughs> This is my vow to you that what I say is true. It's all out there. You don't bring anything else into the meeting. <laughs> this is how strong and confident we are. <laughs> but I think, I mean, joking aside, I think the existence of something like the Magical Nude Gate, you're, you're creating a world where diplomacy is going to be your primary form of engagement between different countries because that's going to be so much more easier like actually going to war with somebody else is going to take a whole lot of logistics where you actually have to like oh we gotta get a boat and go over there with guys with swords and you know that's gonna that that's, seems like a lot of work it's a lot of work can, can compared we just... to just sending john through the mng <laughs> i mean i'll take care of it and he'll talk it out and, you know because then that is going to be your your fallback every time if that's the easiest going to be the easiest thing to do because you can just send an envoy or you can send a whole diplomatic what's the word i want i think it's also envoy but like delegation you can delegation that's the word i want you can send a whole delegation or you can even like as i've been thinking about this i would think instead of having anything resembling like standard warfare you would probably have things like athletic competition you would have the olympics rather than you know having having a war because you would just send a bunch of athletes who already look great because so then (laughs) (laughs) i was picturing like you know meetings 
like we were saying, if, if your meetings were conducted naked. But the image that popped into my head was from the Avengers when Samuel L. Jackson is talking to all those people through the, the thing, except they're all naked. <laughs> it's like, I recognize the council has made a decision. <laughs> and they're just all naked. Like, that's just what popped into my head just now. <laughs> but I'm also picturing, like, suppose someone gets information and they have to get home right away. I'm just picturing a, a, a diplomat or a spy, like, charging down this hallway, just tearing off all their clothing and <laughs> throwing themselves through the gate and then coming through on the other side and just storming down the hallway again be like i don't care no time for pants <laughs> gotta get this information to the person who needs it you gotta tell people right away you can get me a robe later <laughs> <laughs> like some poor page is like following them like please <laughs> please put this on but again like as, as we talked about back then like you would then create a like how much of a cultural taboo is being naked in that world anyway if like that's if my spy shows up naked i dismiss everyone immediately because she's got something to tell me yeah <laughs> it's like all right you, court's over everyone out you know that that would be like an idiom in that world like this is as urgent as a naked spy <laughs> <laughs> i love it i love it so speaking of james bond <laughs> Good, good transition. Good transition. But so much of like the, the, the Bondian mystique is this sort of like, I'm going to go to a casino and be suave and debonair within the casino and play, you know, and thus win it back or at just because I'm that awesome. But if magic comes into play where you have to like win a game of chance, but like, you know, can you use magic to influence the game of chance and things like that? And though... I'm reminded of there's one episode of the magicians where at this point magic is magic is being kind of fritzy. And if you do too much at once, then you're going to, you're going to screw up magic for a while where you are. But there's a whole card game thing where they have to like win the card game where it is literally like, it's basically, they're just playing war where whoever has the high card wins, but you're allowed to use like, luck and probability magic to influence which card of yours comes up to still to win to win the most but once you start like playing with probability magic in the room then things get weirder and weirder <laughs> within the room because so much weird probability magic is flying around but then then quentin who's the, the main character there who even before he was trained as a magician was just always doing card tricks his final move is to just do a big spell that just blows out all the magic in the room. And then, but then he can just do a regular, I'm good with my hands card trick to then, to then win, win the hand at the end. So, but like there, there, the whole point of the game of chance is using magic to win the game. Like that's the expected, what you're doing is futzing around with your probability magic. And I love the idea too of like, what, what room is there with espionage for playing with magic? Wouldn't you like to be a fly on the wall? Like, but if you have shape-shifting magic, you could. Yeah. <laughs> like, you could just do that. You could be a fly on the wall or a mouse or a bird sitting outside the window and, like, talk about an effective spy. But then if everyone has that, like, does that become, like, this dangerous game of, like, literally cat and mouse where the other side's... <laughs> spies are turning into cats to hunt the i mean it's just 
turtles all the way down with that one, but it's turtles that could be pretty fun to play with. Or, you know, do you have, like, you have spies who are using scrying magic to listen in places, but then you also have your, your anti-scrying wards to keep that from happening. Do you have, tel- like, how much is of spycraft is just, we have telepaths, and they're going to, you know, find out what you know, or find out your secrets so we can use that as leverage against you. Or if you're... Is it common practice too when you start a meeting, cast a spell that's like, all right, <laughs> <laughs> any 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 bird creatures in here that aren't actually birds get revealed. <laughs> so, <Clear it> out. <laughs> or... do you cast a protective shield against telepaths? Uh, yeah, it's or or do you cast a spell that requires only truth? Yeah, you said, and then and then how does oh, that affect love... like how does that affect culturally then? Like if you I know love, like truth serum magic, that's, that like, that's you know, no one can go to a diplomatic meeting and lie. Like it just doesn't work. But you could also still then, you know, be choosing your words. Mm-hmm. So very carefully, like all these things I have said are technically true. I actually used to do that in a role playing game because the character I was playing, like her deception was crap and i knew if i had to roll deception i was screwed but if it was some other skill if it was like technically nothing she said was a lie (laughs) then i could roll one of the skills i actually had a lot of dice in (laughs) and i was like okay all right i guess that works my jam got very annoyed it also it depends on how your truth magic works in that situation is it that you simply cannot lie or is it the kind of truth magic where the truth is just going to pour out of you whether you want it to or not (laughs) yes is it the verbal diarrhea kind of truth magic where it just (laughs) you know or if if enough people are telepathic right because then you have instead of like someone taking notes in the room or like a stenographer you have like the telepath sitting over there like that's not accurate yeah that's no that's not true him right in there. Babylon 5, they, you know, had commercial telepaths that that was the basic function of them. Like, they couldn't, like, dig into people's brains to, like, find their secrets. Like, that wasn't allowed in the code. But you hired them when you had a negotiation or a meeting. Just basically like, yes, he's telling the truth. Or, nope, that's a lie. <laughs> <laughs> or, like, the Betazoids in Star Trek tend to be a, a diplomatic species because they're empaths. So, like, they can't pluck the truth out of your head. But if they're in a meeting, they'll be like, well, that guy's lying. <laughs> they can they can tell when deception is happening, even if they don't know exactly what's going on. And that makes them, as a race, they've sort of made that their skill. Like, they, they trade on Deanna, that skill. Who is only half Betazoid. He seems really nervous and swirly. The full Betazoids hmm. were fully telepathic. Yeah, if you, well, that's true. Well, with but, like not with all species, as I recall. They couldn't like, read it doesn't Ferengi. work on, like, the Ferengi. They couldn't read the Ferengi. That was the thing. Plus, also, always naked, for some reason. (laughs) We keep coming back to that. (laughs) All I got is nudity now. (laughs) Just a head full of naked diplomats. Just just all that we've got. (laughs) Could that be a power move? Could, like, in in a world where all your diplomats had to be naked, could could making them be attractive by the standards of your culture be part of the job description? Or the opposite. Mm. Then they won't look too closely at you, maybe. Yep. <laughs> it, or is that part of just the gamesmanship of who you send? Like, this one, we want we want you to stall for time. So maybe send Jim to this one, because they'll want to keep Jim in there for a while. <laughs> That's true. They will like talking to Jim. 
<laughs> Boy, this MNG, we have just opened up a floodgate for ourselves. We really have. I like it, though. I like it. Well, I think that there are certainly more topics to be explored between diplomacy, espionage, and everything in between. But I feel like we have given plenty of room for thought and a couple of fantastic uh, short story ideas that I would love to see someone send me to read. Magical kitten dictator. Dictator. <laughs> Diplomat. I am so tired. Now I do want the, the, the magical kitten dictator, though. Like, that's well, that's just that's just Yzma from The Emperor's New Groove. <laughs> the, the, kitten, the kitten diplomat's a different thing entirely. Different thing entirely. What if diplomacy is just sending kittens? I would sign up for that. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't ever get anything done. Nations would fall into ruin. <laughs> wars Everyone's would playing. break out everywhere, but... Or kittens, no wars, so because... Everybody has a kitten, so they're like, you know, we were going to invade, but look at his face. (laughs) I mean, trading animals has been a part of diplomacy. That's true. In the past, you know, like, here's your panda. It's useless, but it's got a lot of prestige, so that's part of our diplomatic arrangement. It's real cute when it plays in the snow. (laughs) Or, like, the whole myth about piranhas came about because, because a group the government in South America wanted to impress Teddy Roosevelt. So I did not know that. That's amazing. Like this is a whole, they created a whole thing where they basically got a bunch of piranhas and all but starved them for like a week. <laughs> so that when Teddy Roosevelt showed up, they're like, look what it can, they can do to a cow in seconds, which they did because they were so hungry. <laughs> and that so, shows they had good intel on Teddy Roosevelt. Yes, they did. <laughs> That's like, some solid diplomatic work right there. He's going to be impressed by fish that can eat a cow in seconds. <laughs> <laughs> well, who wouldn't be, to be honest? <laughs> but they knew... That was their target audience. Yeah, that was so, that was yeah. catnip for Teddy. Certainly a key aspect of diplomacy is doing your intelligence work ahead of time, and that requires espionage. And boom, I just wrapped up the show. Perfect. <laughs> you did. Thank Full you. circle. <laughs> Hi you, thanks for listening to this episode of World Building for Masochists and letting us help you overcomplicate your writing life. Our next episode goes up on March 17th and we'll be talking with C.L. Clark about in-world songs, poetry, and meta-text. We hope you join us for that one. And we really hope you liked this episode. If you did, please do take a minute to tell a friend, shout about us on the internet, or leave a review on iTunes. If you've got questions or you just want to tell us how cute we are, there's a number of ways to contact us. We're on Twitter as at WorldBuildCast, and our email is WorldBuildCast at gmail.com. We also have a Discord chat room linked on our About the Show page of our website. If you want to come and chat with us, and other fans of the podcast. We'd love for you to share the worlds you're making and help us all build until it hurts.